Well, welcome uh, from myself and the pastor here, uh, Paul. And if you want to speak to me about anything that we talk about this morning, uh, we'd love to chat to you about it as we talk about the greatest question that has ever been asked. So if you have your Bibles, it would be helpful to turn back to Mark chapter 10. If you don't, you can follow along as we look at this passage. What is the most important question you've ever been asked? Well, certainly the one that the disciples ask here in verse 26 is the most important question ever asked in all of history. Who can be saved? It's a question concerning our rescue. It's concerning our eternal salvation. Who can be saved? You see, the Bible exposes that all of us are in deep need of rescue, of salvation, that we are all in deep trouble. We are all drowning beneath a tsunami of our own rebellion against God. And so we need to be saved. We're in the fiery, burning building of God's just anger against our sin. And so we need to be saved. We are trapped inside the car crash of our own history. So we need to be saved. We have fallen off the mountain of God's calling to be pure and holy before him. So we need to be saved. The wolf of death is about to devour us. So we need to be saved. We require rescuing. But how? We need to be rescued from ourselves and from our sin. We need to be rescued from God's righteous wrath against our behavior, our actions against him. We need to be rescued from our past and our present as well as our future. But who can be saved? That's the question of this morning. Some of us possibly believe that we deserve to be saved. We're here at church. We're praising God. We're trying our best. We're doing what we can to be good people. We deserve, we think, to be saved. But others among us will probably be convinced that we cannot be saved, that we've been too bad. We've failed too many times. We've been far too wicked. We've done things that God hates. And therefore, I personally cannot be saved. Who can be saved? Well, that's the question that is answered in the verses that we read in Mark chapter 10. In verses 17 to 22, a young man attempts to answer the question himself. And then in verses 13 to 16, just beforehand, and then afterwards, Jesus himself answers the question. So let's look firstly at the young man's attempt to answer his own question, how can I be saved? Or as he puts it, how may I inherit eternal life? The question for him was, can good people, can moral people be saved? Can they inherit eternal life? He asks this very question. And what follows next is a remarkable commendation for him as a person. Um, while so many others around Jesus, as we've been seeing in Mark's gospel, are mocking the Lord Jesus, here comes a young man to Jesus, and he says 
Teacher, you are good. Good teacher, can I ask you a question? He shows Jesus respect, unlike the crowds, unlike the Pharisees. He honors him as a truly good person. And and he's showing his character, isn't he? In the way that he respects the Lord Jesus. He's respectful. He's thoughtful. He's decent. He's a good young man. We also discover that he's an eager, obedient Bible follower. He loved God's words. When Jesus quotes from the Bible, it's clear that he knows what is being said very well. He can quote as much as as the next person. And he sought all of his life to follow God's commands as revealed in the word of God. He's also a moral person. Jesus mentions some of the main moral commands given by God in the Ten Commandments. And he says, no, I've not murdered or committed adultery or stolen. I've not lied. I've not defrauded. I've honored my parents. I'm a moral person. All of these, he says, I've kept from my youth up. And I've sat at the children's talks in the synagogues. I listened carefully. I sought to put them into practice, and I lived them out. All of these I've kept from my youth. I'm a moral person. He's also a wise young man. He's been wise clearly with his finances. He's invested well. He's been careful with his income and his outgoings, and he's become wealthy. He's shown carefulness. He's been astute. He's not been wasteful, but wise. So here we have this clean living, decent young man who's a Bible following, obedient to God, moral, wealthy, and wise person. This fella is surely a saved person. Surely. He loves the Bible. He follows God. He's been wise. He's obeyed the commands. Yet Jesus shows that he's not a saved man at all. He doesn't have eternal life. He is not a Christian. Jesus exposes his heart for where it really is. He shows him that he is not saved. How does he do this? Well, he firstly challenges this young man's understanding of who he, Jesus, is. The young man comes to him and says, good teacher, which is respectful, but it's wholly insufficient. Jesus responds like this. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. Now, Jesus is not saying here that, I, that he is not good or that he is not God. What he's doing is he's questioning the understanding of this young man concerning himself. What do you actually mean when you call me good? Do you mean that I'm a, I'm a teacher, I'm a good teacher, with an, I'm an excellent communicator, I could pass my PGC exams, I, I know that you are able to express the opinions of God very well, you're a good teacher. Or are you saying that I'm a moral person, in the, good in the sense that I'm not evil, I've never done anything particularly wicked, What do you mean when you call me good? 
when you call me good teacher. You know, this is a common confusion, isn't it, in our own culture. People look back at history and they say, Jesus, yeah, he was a good man, an able communicator, a good teacher. But Jesus challenges that very way of thinking. He says, is that all you think of me, really? Is that all I am? Only God is truly good. Only God is absolutely morally pure. A holy God who sits in the heavens. If that's who you think I am, is that who you think I am? When you say I'm good? Or do you have something else in mind when you consider me? To be saved, Jesus is saying, you must have the right view of who I am. Am I just a good man in the sense that a lot of other people are? Am I just an able communicator like many teachers in school? Or are you actually saying that I am God come down to humanity? We must grasp this morning, if we are ever to be saved, the truth about who Jesus is. He's not just a good man from history, but that he is the living God who has come among us, who has dwelt in human flesh, and come to bleed and die for sinners like us. We must have a right understanding of who Jesus is, that he is absolutely the good God of heaven come down to earth. And secondly, he shows the young man that moral, morality and Bible-believing and Bible-loving uh, view of life, even that cannot grant him eternal life. That the young man isn't as good as he thinks he is. So Jesus here, he asks him about some of the Ten Commandments. He, he can hardly list them, can he, before the young man is sick, proclaiming his own goodness. Yes, all of these I've kept since I was young, since I was a child. Though he's come to Jesus asking the question, how do I inherit eternal life? How can I be saved? It's very clear at this point, at least, that he believed that he is spiritually alive. I've done everything that God's asked of me. God's asked me to obey and be moral and follow his word. I've done that. Surely I am saved. And yet, there's clearly also a hint of doubt, isn't there? Why has he come to Jesus asking, what do I do to inherit eternal life? When he's done everything that God's asked him to in his word as best he can. I've kept them all, he says. But um, am I okay? Is that enough? Am I saved? Do I gain eternal life for that? There's an element in him of doubt because of all he's done still, there's no confidence, no assurance of faith that he is going to be with God. He's good by the standards of the world. He is very moral super religious in the good sense of the word that he sought to worship God with all of his heart. He's been doing his best. He's read and understood and tried to obey the Bible. Yet, he seems to be realizing, perhaps I'm not saved. Perhaps I don't have eternal life. And Jesus here shows him that he's correct in his doubts. Because as good as his appearance is, and as faithful as he is, to God's word and to the worship of God, no one fully obeys God's word 
to the extent that they can be saved. It is impossible, as hard as we try from our youth up, to ever meet the, the amazing, perfect standards of God's holy word. And so he exposes this in the young man by telling him, right, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. What is Jesus saying? Is he saying, look, obey all the commands and sell everything, give up all your wealth. No, he's saying this, look, you are a wealthy man, but you have in reality placed wealth higher than God himself. Because this young man, as he's asked by Jesus to give up his wealth, he says, that's something I cannot do. No matter how much God asks of me, I have spent my entire life investing well, gaining money, gaining assurance for my future health when I retire or whatever. I cannot give up my money. He goes away sorrowful because as much as God may ask him to give it up, he cannot. And he's saying this, God, you are really important to me, but there is something still higher than that. My functioning God, the thing that actually rules my life, is not you, God. It's not you, Jesus Christ, but it is my wealth. He says, I cannot give it up. Now imagine spending your life gaining loads of money and job security and investing in a massive pension scheme, and then God coming to you and saying, look, I want you to trust me. I want you to give it all up, sell all that you have, give up all your pension schemes and all your plans, and give it to charity. But trust me, I've got this. And God says it to you personally. Imagine he says that. How would you feel? Because in that moment, it reveals to you and everyone around you what actually rules your life. It may not be money for us. It may be some pastime or pleasure or enjoyment or person or family, or it might be something else. But if God were to ask us to give that up, what would actually rule us in that moment? Would it be God? Would it be the Lord Jesus Christ? Would it be the creator or cash? Would it be the maker or our money? What would it be in that momentary decision? Because the very first commandment of God is this. You shall have no other gods before me. And this man, yes, he's tried to keep commandments four to ten, but Jesus is just showing him that he hasn't even been able to keep command number one. If command number one is the foundation of all the other commands, that God is first in our lives, and then everything else flows from that. You can keep all the commands. You can say to yourself this morning, I've never committed adultery. I've never killed anyone. I'm a good person. I've never even robbed a sweet as a child from a shop. Never done that. I'm a good person. And Jesus says, yeah, but has God been the ruler of your life so that you're willing to give up everything for him, no matter how hard the cost Oh, how hard the demand that God is first. You've never had another God before me. You've never trusted in anything else but me. None of us, if we're honest, can say that since the moment we've been born up until now, 
We've never had anything else to distract us from him. We've had never had anything else that functionally rules over our lives. We all give in to the joys and the pleasures of our lives. And at, moment we, at moments we forget God entirely as we give ourselves to the created over the creator. All of us have to acknowledge, if we're honest, we may have attempted to keep commands four to ten, but we've never all kept command number one. To receive eternal life is really the choice between two wealths, the temporary wealth and satisfaction of this world or the eternal wealth of giving up everything to Jesus Christ to rule over us as he will. Moses himself, remember, he chose, says scripture, rather to choose to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the rewards. Moses says, I am willing to give up everything for the sake of Jesus Christ. I'll lose it all because he's my Lord and he alone is good and he is God. And so I submit everything, my whole life, to him. And this young man is unable to say that. He chooses wealth above the Lord Jesus. Do you want to be saved? Do you want to gain eternal life? Then being good and being moral and being kind and being wealthy and religious and Bible-knowing and obedient and humble and thoughtful, as lovely as all of those things are, they truly are, they are not how to be saved. They do not gain us eternal life. We can invest our whole life in being good and following God's word and never be saved. To be saved, the holy God, Jesus Christ, must rule over everything we have and everything we are. Can good people be saved? We would think the answer is definitely yes. Jesus says the answer is no. Not if you rely on that to get to heaven. So who can be saved? Well, in order to answer that question, we turn from the young man to the first verses before, where Jesus meets some young children. Parents were bringing their children to Jesus, says the passage, so that Jesus could touch them. Now, if you've been here for Mark's gospel or you've read it before, you'll know that the touch of Jesus was one of the most important things in Mark's gospel. Jesus touched people with blindness and lameness and even death, and his touch healed them and brought them to life. If Jesus touches the head of a child or a man or a woman, whether they're alive or dead or sick or whatever it is, their lives are transformed and God blesses them. The passage here says that the parents were bringing their children to Jesus. Will you touch my child? Will you bless them? To, to be blessed by God is to find his approval, to live in the approval of the living God. And so the parents, they come to, the, to Jesus and say, will you, will you ensure that my child is blessed by God, that they have eternal life, that they live in the approval of God? Will you promise them that? 
but they were living in a culture where children have no rights at all. Um, Children could be rejected on a whim. It was a horrific culture in many ways. They could be rejected. They could be disowned at the parents' will. They have no status in society. If you're as old as me, you might remember this phrase. Children should be seen and not heard. Um, That was what children were all about in that day, in that culture. Yeah, they can be around, but let's not hear them. Let's not give them any rights. Let's not give them any powers at all. They are lowly of society. Slaves often had more rights than the child and could beat the child at will. And so they were lowly in society. And culture struggled with the idea that children should come to Jesus. And we see it in the disciples' response, don't we? As the parents bring the child to Jesus, the disciples are like, what are you doing? Jesus has more important things to do and spend time with these people, if that's what they are, these children. Here are the disciples stuck in a culture that rejected children with no rights. They struggled with the idea of children. Jesus struggles with the idea of what they are doing. He says, what do you think you're doing? Pushing the children aside, rejecting the children. And while the disciples are busy rebuking Jesus for accepting the children and busy rebuking the parents for bringing the children, Jesus is busy rebuking the disciples for rejecting them all. Verse 14, it uses a strong word for the attitude of Jesus to his own disciples. He was indignant with them. He was angry with them because of the injustices of what they were saying. On the contrary, says Jesus, these young people without rights, with no status, no authority to come to me, they are the very ones who can be saved. They are the very ones who can be blessed by God. He says to them belongs the the kingdom of God. These are the ones who can be accepted and inherit and be forgiven. In fact, he says in verse 15, any one of you who wants to belong to the kingdom of God, anyone here, he says, wants to be saved, then you must become as these little children. You must acknowledge before God, I have no rights before you. I have not lived a life of morality yet. I've just been born. I've not obeyed your commands yet. I've not lived a life of religious obedience yet. And yet I come to you with no obedience, no morality to offer you, no rights to claim that I belong to you. I come to you without a claim in the world. Jesus says you've come in the right way. You've come in the right way. Contrast that with the young man we've just seen. If anyone has rights to inherit eternal life, he had. Working hard, strong in obedience, seeking Christ himself, high social status, yet without it going to his head, if anyone didn't have the rights, it was the child. And yet God says, to you, I give the right to become the children of God. You with no rights. I give the right. Here are the children coming to Jesus 
with empty hands, with nothing to offer, and they are received. They are welcomed. Here comes the man, young man, with everything to offer, everything to give. Yet the end of his story says he went away sorrowful because he received nothing. Here's the thing. How do I get saved? How do you get saved? How do you become a Christian? How are you accepted by God? Same question. How do you receive eternal life? What's the answer? Well, it's not what most people in the world would think the answer is. We are accepted by Jesus, not by what we do, but by coming to him just as we are with all our disobediences and all our failures and all our irreligiosity and all our um, misunderstandings and all our doubts and all our fears and all our rebellion and all our wickedness. And we come to Jesus and say, I have no rights. But I know that you're good, that you've died for me, that you're God and you're powerful enough to save me. I can give you nothing. I come with empty hands. God says, I give you the right to become the child of God. If we come to God in any sort of understanding, I have rights here. I have been good here. I've been moral here. I've been religious here. I've done this for you, God. Please, you must accept me. God says you have no rights to become the children of, of God. He alone must rescue. He alone must save. He alone must lift us from the grave. Because in coming to earth, he has been the Holy One who alone kept all the commands of God fully from command one to ten and beyond. Without failure, without deviation, without any sort of impurity, he alone has kept the commands of God. The young man, as good as he was, couldn't keep command one, and neither can we. And this good God, Jesus Christ, has come to earth not only to live the life we could not by obeying the commands of God, but to die the death that we deserved. As he hung upon that cross, bleeding out, crown of thorns on his head, hand, holes in his hands and his feet, having been despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, thrown into a grave, seal put on the door, men saying, I'll never see him again. Thank goodness he's gone. It's that God who comes out of the grave and he says, <clears throat> you've done nothing, but I have done everything. I've died for you. I've risen for you. I've done what it takes for sinners like you who could not keep the commands of God. I've done what it takes to live the life you could not and die the death you deserved. I offer you freely eternal life. So come to me, he says, with empty hands and open hearts to receive me without offering me anything. I simply come to him and say, Jesus, you are my king. You are my king. You are my God. You're good. You alone are good. I will follow you wherever you lead me. I will give up whatever you ask me to. Wherever you are, I want to be. Wherever you lead me, I will follow you are my Lord. You are my King. And I have nothing to offer you, but I receive everything that you have to give me. 
Salvation is impossible for us to attain to. This is what Jesus says here. He says it's easier for a camel with all its massive humps. I don't know why you have to add humps in to a camel. Couldn't get through the eye of a needle anyway. But he says the, ca- the camel with its humps. I guess the needle gets stuck in that hump somewhere. But it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because the rich so often exalt their riches and could never give up their riches. Say, I can't come to God if it means giving up anything. This is what rules my life, not him. While it's impossible for us to ever be good enough, salvation is is possible with God. God can save us. God can see all our wickedness and all our selfishness and all our lack of rights, and he can come to us and say, I save you. I forgive you, but it's he who must save, for we cannot save ourselves, however hard we try. You see, the qualification for salvation is, ironically, our helplessness, not our strength. Our qualification for being saved is our sin, not our holiness or our purity. Our qualification for gaining eternal life is our lack of rights, not our rights. If we come to God and say, my rights, God, accept me as I am, because I have rights before you, the rights of the child, the rights of the adult. I have rights, God. Come and see what I have done. He says, I cannot save you. But if you come with no rights, he will save. Imagine you go to Penarth Pier this week, and there's a criminal known by all of Cardiff as the worst criminal in Cardiff. They're drowning in the sea. And on Penarth Pier is the best living judge, still dressed in his wig, standing on the pier, looking at the drowning man. And the helicopter, the rescue helicopter, flies in. Who's it going to save? The righteous, good judge standing on the pier? Or the criminal perishing beneath the waves? The only one who qualifies for rescue, for salvation in that scenario, It's the criminal, the one who has helplessly drowning, who's done nothing for society, who's caused harm to many, yet they qualify because they're drowning. And it's the same with each one of us. If we do not know Jesus as Lord, we are drowning in our sin. We are drowning in our own wickedness, in our rebellion against him. But that's what qualifies us. God swoops in by the power of his spirit. He says, this is possible for me. I'm going to save you. I'm going to rescue you. The disciples take the rebuke here. They realize the truth of how they're actually saved. They are shocked that the young man can't be saved and that the children can be. And Jesus rebukes them and they take the rebuke with a slight tremor in his voice, wondering if they've been too self-righteous in their treatment of children, and maybe therefore aren't saved themselves. Peter says this, we've left everything to follow you. 
Are we the young man or are we the children, he's asking. To which Jesus responds, if it is true, then you are the child. You've left everything to follow me. You are blessed by God. He does approve of you. You are saved. And all of you who've left behind homes and family and wealth, I will give you treasures. I will give you family beyond your greatest expectation. I'll give you wealth, eternal wealth. I'll give you eternal life. I'll give you a church family who will care for you. If you are willing to come to Jesus and say, I've got no rights, I give up everything and I follow you, Jesus says, yeah, you might lose everything, but I will give you everything in return. I'll give you a home in the church. I'll give you the love of God's people. I'll give you eternal life, eternal wealth. I'll give you everything. But first, you must give up everything. You must be willing to say, nothing stands in my way. I trust Jesus alone and follow him wherever he may lead, however hard that may be. Jesus, you are king. You are good. You are God. And I trust you and I follow you. So as we close, the question for each one of us this morning is this. Are you bad enough to be saved? Are you bad enough to be saved? Are you ready to proclaim that Jesus is the good God? Are you ready to give up everything, including your own goodness and self-righteousness and wealth to follow him? Are you bad enough to be saved? Then God will do the impossible. Jesus will save us. Let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for so great salvation that comes to us so rich and so free. And so we come with proclaiming nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Lord, we ask that if there are those among us this morning who know nothing of this great salvation, that they would receive the Lord Jesus Christ, acknowledging their sin, being repentant before you, turning away from the past and turning to Jesus. Father, pour out your spirit upon us this morning, we pray, and may Jesus receive all the glory and all the praise for his great salvation that comes so rich and so free. We pray this for the glory of his name. Amen. Amen.